Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Bernard Keogh, lecturer in Asian history at La Trobe University, and I'll be your host today. In the voluminous literature on the history of modernization theory and its associated concept of development since the end of World War II, much of the focus lies on the efforts undertaken by developed nations, most notably the United States and Soviet Union, to establish a model for developing countries to build not just their economies, but their nations as well. Eschewing this paradigm, Dr. Nicholas Fern's excellent monograph, Australia in the Age of International Development, 1945 to 1975, Colonial and Foreign Aid Policy in Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia, published by Routledge in 2019, provides a rich and important intervention that highlights how the ideas and practices that underpin international development are shaped not only by the Cold War superpowers, but by middle powers like Australia as well. Focusing particularly on Australia's development aid efforts in Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia through its own formulation of the New Deal for the former and the Colombo Plan for the latter, Farns brings to light the complexity of a country caught in the middle of its own perception as being between a developed and developing nation, between British and American economic and developmental influences, and between serving as a colonial power in its own right, while also supporting anti-colonial movements. Today, I'm joined by Nick to discuss his thought-provoking book, Australia the Age of International Development. Nick is a research fellow in history at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks so much for agreeing to come along to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bernard, and thank you for the very kind overview of the book. Uh, it's very nice. No, it's a, it's an excellent uh, monograph, and I would recommend everybody reads it. Uh, but I guess before we get started on the book itself, one thing that we like to do in the New Books Network is spend a little bit of time giving the audience a bit of an introduction to the author. So would you mind giving us a bit of a background about yourself as an historian? Uh, so, you know, maybe a little bit about your research journey and how you got into studying the history of Australia's international development programs in particular? Yeah, so to start with who I am as a historian, I'm a a historian of development, as you pointed out in your intro, Um, but I'm also interested in sort of the intersections between colonialism and and foreign aid, um, broadly conceived in in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Um, My time period that I'm particularly interested in, I'm I'm a a scholar of the second half of the the 20th century. I I sometimes venture back to the the first half of the 20th century. but I'm, I'm particularly interested in how Australia uh, grapples with, with broad international forces like decolonisation, development, um, and, and so on. So my historical journey or my intellectual journey, if you will, um, it's been a, a, a journey, let's put it that way, that I actually started as an American historian. My early postgrad work uh, was in American history particularly interested in in American foreign policy in the Vietnam War, which was my honours thesis. I I looked at sort of the politics of of escalation uh, of the Vietnam War. And then I did an MA also at at Monash looking at the foreign policy of Woodrow Wilson um, and sort of the ways in which friendship and his friendship with close advisors sort of impacted upon his foreign policy. 
But during my master's, I sort of started to think through, well, what comes next? What's the next project going to be? And I started taking an interest in Australian history, or maybe started taking an interest in the wrong phrase. I'd always had a, a slight interest in Australian history, but particularly was drawn by the sort of transnational approach that would come through, sort of trying to, to look at the connections between Australia and the United States. Um, and as I began my PhD, which was at Monash, um, I've never left really, uh, was um, originally looking at the ways that both Australia and the United States um, sort of created their foreign policies towards Southeast Asia in the, the decades after the, the, the Second World War. But early on in my PhD, I was encouraged by my supervisor, Agnieszka Sobaczynska, who I'm sure is someone you're familiar with as well, Bernard, uh, to read some work on the history of development. Um, and I'd sort of recognised that no one had really done this sort of work in an Australian context, looking at how Australia had engaged with, with a history of development, concepts of, of development and foreign aid and so on. And so alongside that, so I started then looking at programs like the Colombo Plan, foreign aid projects um, by, by Australia in Southeast Asia. And it opened up research into Australia's colonial rule in Papua New Guinea, which was where the, the bulk of Australia's development spending um, went in the years after the, the Second World War. And so really bringing those, those sort of factors together is, is kind of um, how I gained an interest, I suppose, in, in international development and, and Australia's place within that, that system. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and sort of for full disclosure, uh, Nick and I shared a supervisor in the form of Agnieszka Sobaczynska um, at different times. Um, and if people are interested in Nick's book, they should also check out Agnieszka's book, uh, which is Saving the World, Western Volunteers and the Rise of the Humanitarian Development Complex, uh, which is another excellent kind of study that incorporates Australia into histories of international development as well. Um, but we're focusing on Nick's book today. So maybe if you uh, could give the audience a bit of an insight into what you think of as the kind of main overall argument for Australia in the age of international development, that, that would be helpful for them, I think. <laughs> no, no problem. And, and so I guess to, to preface, you know, the statement of what my argument is going to be, and I'll be like a Senate historian, it'll take me a very long time to unpack what my argument uh, actually was. But I guess the, 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 the starting premise is this idea of an age of international development, that, that the period, as I characterise it in my book, the period 1945 through to roughly 1975 can be characterised as what I call the age of international development. Some might see it as an age of international development. But really it's a time, it's a period where ideas and politics sort of intertwined to produce doctrines of modernisation theory and foreign aid programs and, and, and so on that, that really drive this, this sort of high period of, of, of modernisation. And my argument is that Australia was an active participant in this process, that uh, prominent Australian economists such as John Crawford and Herbert Nugget, in inverted commas, Coombs, can't not mention him, um, engaged with their international counterparts, sort of formulating notions of, of development and concepts of, of development. Crawford, for instance, was a, an early... Um, sort of theorist, I guess, or, or, or pioneer in, in quantifying ideas of gross national product and so on with his, his um, counterpart, Colin Clark. Um, but, but sort of, so those economists worked with, with others um, in, uh, overseas, but also 
particularly in the Australian context, that the, the economists were often also policymakers. Crawford and Coombs were, were very active in, in the policymaking field. And so they incorporated a lot of this developmental thinking into colonial policies in Papua New Guinea, foreign aid policies in, in, in Southeast Asia. And so that's the sort of broad claim. And I guess the, you know, the, the, the intervention, if you will, in, in terms of Australian history is to bring the conversations about colonial development in Papua New Guinea into conversation with foreign aid policy, particularly towards Southeast Asia. Um, prior to my book, and, and I like to think that I've now brought these two together, but prior to it, these were seen as separate conversations when um, what I argue and what I show is that that we can't look at them in isolation. We need to look at the two together, that... that um, developmental thinking in Papua New Guinea informed foreign aid policy and, and often, you know, worked vice versa um, for both policymakers and and experts. And so, in a way, this shifts the story. Before my my book was published, was really that Australian aid begins with the Colombo Plan, a meeting in nineteen fifty. But I sort of try and bring it back to to you know, at the very latest, the end of the the Second World War. I think you know historians can probably trace it further back as well. But but that's where I. I sort of begin that that immediate post-war or post-Second World War period. Yeah, and that's really interesting because I think it, it's something that's quite lacking as far as I'm aware. I'm not a development historian myself, obviously, um, but based on my knowledge of the, the broad sweep of histories of development, there does tend to be this kind of distinction between um, pre-war colonial development and post-war international development. And really what the book kind of seems to demonstrate is that there is this long-standing kind of uh, trajectory between the two of them. I, I wonder if you could kind of spend a little bit more time talking about that in terms of this kind of uh, longer examination of, of development through the lens of uh, not just, you know, uh, dividing them into two separate categories, but sort of bringing them together and synthesizing them into this kind of longer sweep of, of uh, international history. Mm. It's a really good question. I think that part of it stems from personnel, that, that there are, you know, that there is often continuity between, say, British colonial uh, officials who then go and work in, um, you know, the World Bank or, or, or various other development programs, although British um, sort of development programs. And, and I guess intellectually as well, there's, there's a, a growing recognition, probably in the interwar period, um, some would argue it sort of coincides with shifting colonial attitudes, you know, League of Nations mandates and and, and so on. That colonial policy, uh, there's an expectation that colonial policy should play or, or sort of have a greater um, recognition of the welfare and and development of the, the, the peoples um, within the colonies. And I think that that conception sort of flows through into that post-war period to broaden out that, that people in what become known as the underdeveloped world, to use you know, Harry Truman's phrase from his famous 1949.4 speech, um, that there is a, a, a sort of responsibility, if you will, amongst the more wealthy parts of the world to promote the welfare and that then theoretically development provides the framework within which this, this money can sort of go and to provide it. it. It provides a series of policy ideas, um, programs, projects, et cetera, that can be implemented. Um, but this was done both in a colonial context and in a, a sort of non-colonial or even post-colonial context 
And I think, yeah, bringing those two together, um, there was some really, you know, exciting work in, in recent years. I'm thinking of Joseph Hodge and, and, you know, Frederick Cooper, these people who sort of look at, at colonial development and how we might understand it being a kind of um, predecessor to, to international development. Um, yeah, and, and sort of thanks for mentioning Truman and Point 4 because that kind of segues very naturally to my next question, which is really about sort of how much of Australia's attitudes and approaches to post-war development were shaped either or in combination by British and American models of development, especially because Australia obviously has its history of strategic alignment and foreign policy, first with the British Empire slash Commonwealth, uh, and then later with the United States during the Cold War. So do we see this kind of similar shift in terms of developmental imperatives, or even in terms of the geographic areas in which Australia focuses development on? Hmm. I think that, that, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and I, I, I would first of all sort of, I don't know, suggest, argue that that in terms of developmental approach and so on, I'm not sure there's that larger distinction between British and American models. There might be some scholars who would sort of potentially, um, you know, find issue with that. But I think that frequently ideas are going back and forth across the Atlantic, if you will, over, you know, the, the ways of, of um, you know, assisting the, the underdeveloped peoples of, of the world. That being said, I think... One distinction that can be drawn, as it comes out of my work at least, is that Australia's colonial policies have a draw clear inspiration from British colonial sort of policies, uh, approaches, so on. There are differences. I don't want to suggest that Australia's administration in Papua New Guinea just was a a direct copy of of what the British would do in Africa or Southeast Asia or the Pacific or, or, or what have you. But there's definitely a recognition that that um, Australia's colonial attitude towards its colonial administrations was informed by British examples, which US, you know, didn't quite have the same colonial history um, as 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 the British, and of course Australia was a British British colony. Um, but then, in terms of foreign aid, particularly in post-war foreign aid policies, I think we see the American influence much more more strongly even though the colombo plan was technically a commonwealth program it was was wasn't technically it was a commonwealth program emerged out of of meetings of commonwealth leaders of course the us was part of the colombo plan recognizing the 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 economic uh strength of the united states but the policies that were implemented the the projects that were supported through the colombo plan technical assistance ideas of bringing students over to to um, Australia from from South and Southeast Asia, or promoting um, uh, irrigation projects or infrastructure projects in Pakistan or Thailand or what have you, were informed by what might be seen as American modernization sort of concepts. Um, so I think there's there's that dimension. But then thinking more broadly about the sort of strategic dimension, which you, you kind of pointed out that you know there's this sort of trajectory where Australia is under the British umbrella and then this changes by the, the Cold War into the American orbit. Um, you know, I think there is merit to that idea that, that you know, there's the famous John Curtin speech in 1941. I want to say it's either late 41, early 1942. Um, I should have written that down. But um, this this notion where John Curtin gives a speech where Australia's turning to, to the United States, free of any pains, this is the quote to, to, to the British Empire, 
And a lot of Australian scholars sort of look at that and see that this is the moment where Australia sort of shifts its its gaze across the Pacific rather than back towards um, Great Britain, that, that the US is now the, the big brother, if you will, um, of, of Australia. There's a longer history that, you know, you could look at Alfred Deakin inviting the, the Great White Fleet, Teddy Roosevelt's Great White Fleet in the early 20th century as sort of a recognition of American naval power in the Pacific. Um, and I think it also sort of looks past the ongoing influence of, of the British in Australia, you know, under the Menzies governments into the 1950s and, and early 1960s um, that would suggest, you know, it's the, the British sort of decision to, to turn towards Europe that might sort of shape it, ironically, given recent events in, in Great Britain, of course, um, that, that complicates that. So I, I guess the, 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 to wrap it up, I think that Australia frequently is looking to both sides. And, and I think in a Cold War context, all, you know, there is a common playbook, I suppose, that, that Australia, Great Britain and the United States, a colleague upon it, brings to mind the, the horrible acronym of AUKUS that Australia, A-U-K-U-S, that Australia, uh, UK and the US sort of, you know, signed whenever it was last year or, or, or what have you. That hasn't really gone away. I think there is this sort of Anglophone, Anglosphere um, sort of area that Australia has, has bought into for a long time. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point, especially the, the point about the Anglophone world that Australia belongs in. Uh, there's the affectionately known AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, uh, but there's also obviously uh, the Five Eyes program with New Zealand and uh, Canada as well. So there is this kind of longstanding history. Um, so let's kind of focus in on some of your case studies. And I thought I'd start us off with Papua New Guinea, where you highlight this kind of interesting tension between the desires of metropolitan academics, bureaucrats, and politicians to kind of move away from this kind of colonial paternalistic development idea towards improving indigenous living standards. And on the other side of this, you have this kind of level of resistance being posed by the Australian expatriate community in PNG into these policies. Could you tell us a little bit more about how this played out over time? Yeah, it's a, an interesting phenomenon. And part of it, I, I, I wonder if part of it is perhaps... Um, sort of highlighted even further by some of the sources that that, that bring this out. That that one of the most famous, infamous might be another word that, that sort of, you know, comes to mind, publications of the the, the period is a, 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 a sort of periodical, a journal known as the Pacific Islands Monthly. It was published, I think it was was based in Sydney, uh, but would publish, you know, sort of articles on, on the Pacific and frequently uh, would publish articles that vocalised what I would call a colonialist perception of, of Australian policy in, in PNG, that to contextualise, in the years after, immediately after the, the, the Second World War, Australia decides to, the, the, the Labor government in Australia decides to, to promote what they call a new deal for, for Papua New Guinea, which involves, as you mentioned in your question, um, increased spending to promote development projects in in Papua New Guinea. Um, and some of the reaction to this in the Pacific Islands Monthly is quite vocal in its opposition to this, this sort of do-gooder change. You know, there, there, there are some pretty vivid um, descriptions of what some of the, the planters would like to do to Eddie Ward, who was the Minister for External Territories at the time. They'd like to... The, the phrase used is Shanghai up the river and, and sort of um, see what happens there. Yeah, very, very vivid language. 
And so, first of all, I'm not sure this is just a feature of, of Papua New Guinea politics. I think this is a pretty common feature of, of any sort of centralised policy-making area, maybe in a colonial context in particular, with the sort of on-the-ground, you know, informal perhaps forms of expertise versus the more more formally, you know, bureaucratic um, forms of, of policy-making. Um, but, it, it, yeah, it definitely comes through in Papua New Guinea. And I think part of it is driven by different conceptions by, of what Australia was, was supposed to do in Papua New Guinea, that in Canberra, um, there is a, a recognition that Australia has international obligations through the UN Trusteeship Council to promote, quote, the economic, political, social and educational advancement, that's off the top of my head, of the, the, the Papua New Guinean people um, versus certain interests. And I don't want to say all expats were, you know, these, these sort of um, had these positions, but certain groups, whether it was planter classes, mining interests to an extent, business interests frequently, who who perhaps saw um, Australia's interest in, in sort of protecting the expatriate groups within Papua New Guinea and that this was a, a departure away from that. So that, that that's part of what's what's going on there. I think also there's a sort of temporal, there's a chronological element here of expats who had been in New Guinea or Papua New Guinea for a long time. That, that had existed before this shift had come into play, who might have been in, in New Guinea even during the German period or, or at least in the period of the, New Guinea was a German colony until the end of the, the First World War, um, where particularly in the interwar period there was a much less or a much more hands-off Australian policy where a number of Australians would would, would head, up, head up to to New Guinea to, you know, set up a mine or, or what have you with very minimal oversight of labor policy um there are some quite grim tales of of what happened to to um local labor uh in in the mines in in, in certain areas um so i think that was part of it as well and i guess the final part is that there was there's a middle player in this there's an intermediary in this there's there's the on one side, you've got the the expats who have travelled up there, perhaps to try and make some money or or what have you. You've got the Canberra bureaucracy, you know, the territories department, which has ultimate oversight over what's happening in in Papua New Guinea. But then in the middle, you have the Papua New Guinea administration, which is sort of trying to please both sides. That that the 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 expats are, are, are mingling; they're going to the same clubs as the the administration officials there. They're, you know, living in the same kind of complexes, but they're then receiving instructions from Canberra, sort of giving them that that um, pressure. So the administration finds itself in an awkward position, and and some would argue they they really struggle to to navigate that balance throughout the decades that go on. But I think that tension goes away or changes a little bit by the nineteen sixties, where as independence starts to come up, Papua New Guinea. For those who are listening, Papua New Guinea gets its independence in nineteen seventy five. Um, as pressure for independence really starts to ramp up, there is a growing voice um, amongst the expats to slow down that trajectory towards independence. And the department in Canberra is sort of torn. Some people in the department are, are, are trying to ramp things up. Some are, are trying to slow things down. And, and it sort of blurs that that distinction between the two. Yeah, and, and sort of given the 
time period under examination in the book, especially for PNG. I would imagine that there is also changes in the way that the government in Canberra approaches Papua New Guinea on the basis of which political party is in charge of government at the time. So uh, for context for listeners who might not be familiar with Australian politics, uh, the major parties are the Australian Labour Party, so leftist uh, socialist kind of socialist democratic government versus uh, the liberal national coalition, which is a coalition of uh, conservative, mostly urban conservatives and also rural conservatives, which is the national party. So would you be able to kind of uh, spell out potentially a little bit in terms of does this kind of shift take place depending on what government is, what political party is in government that in that particular time period? Yeah, yes and no. So so I guess the, the, the most important part to, to note there is that the Liberal National Coalition is in power from 1949 through to 1972. So they they are the dominant player in, in this period. That you know, Robert Menzies is the, the archetypical liberal prime minister. He's prime minister from 1949 to 1966, longest standing uh, prime minister in Australian history. And then then after the, the Menzies period, um, it does start to break up a little bit, partly to do with the Labor opposition. Um, so Gough Whitlam in particular is a very vocal, anti-colonial, um, sort of has this, this instinctive anti-colonialism that he, he sees um, Australian colonial rule in, in, in Papua New Guinea as something to be opposed and, and um you know that's that's probably where my position on on Papua New Guinea sort of fits in as well. But in opposition, particularly by the mid to late nineteen sixties, which sounds very late, I think for, for for many people. But he becomes the leader of the opposition by the mid to late nineteen sixties. I'm not sure of the exact date, but he definitely ramps up the pressure on the, the the Liberal National Coalition to to change policy. Another important dimension of this is uh, specific ministers that, that under the, the, the Liberal Party, um, Paul Hasluck, who was a Minister for Territories um, for a very long time, 1951 through to 1963. And he, I think, actually, before I sort of talk about him, it's important to state that the Papua New Guinea didn't loom terribly large in Australian politics at the time. It was always there. I don't want to suggest that it's not not sort of bubbling under, but... but the territory's portfolio was a relatively minor position in the the, the federal cabinet, um, and so Hasluck was sort of able to govern effectively, almost be the sort of overarching, you know, govern Australia's as colonial policy in in Papua New Guinea without too much cabinet oversight, unless it was involved spending. If, if money got involved, then it became a bit of an issue. So I think he plays an important role, and I think his attitude towards colonial rule, he's sort of this this old-style liberal, um, you know, sort of very much believes in in kind of um, promoting the, the the welfare of the people but doing so in a way that, that didn't sort of promote social upheaval, whereas by the time the Labor Party start to, to have a role that Whitlam's far less concerned with, with the sort of political... Uh, status quo, if you will, that, that, that Australia needs to leave and if that causes some political upheaval, then so be it. Um, so there is a shift that takes place. But by the time Labor do regain power in 1972, the trajectory towards independence has more or less been set, but but it, it speeds up a little bit, I suppose, under Labor. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and the other major development program that Australia operated in the post-war period is obviously the Colombo Plan, which also has a kind of uh, successor in the new Colombo Plan, which we might get into later potentially. But so the Colombo Plan focuses on South and Southeast Asia. And something I found really intriguing was this argument that you made that contrary to the existing historiography, the plan was not entirely driven by Cold War anti-communist logic, but had this kind of humanitarian element to it as well. Which do you think is kind of the more powerful motivator for Australian policymakers? Or would you maybe say that there's this kind of ebb and flow of which becomes more powerful as a as an influence as different global events take place? Or is it maybe fairly consistent for one to dominate over the other or for them to kind of just balance each other out? Mm. So I'm, I, I think that the the sort of humanitarian versus security dimension, I think... Framing it as a, a one or the other, I think, is is to to sort of overstate the differences between them. I think they work hand in hand. I, I think um, there's some really important work that shows the the kind of security dimension of development. That that you know, development served security ends, and and I think the Colombo Plan fits that very neatly. That it's a a product of an early Cold War mindset of of trying to, you know, effectively buy the hearts and minds, if you will, of of the you know, whether they're still colonised peoples of, of Southeast Asia or newly independent peoples of India or Pakistan, for instance. Um, and and I think that the security dimension has been well um, sort of covered in the, 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 the history, particularly of the Australian um, dimension of, of the Colombo Plan. People like David Lowe, Daniel Oakman have written on, on the Colombo Plan as a sort of part of Australia's Cold War policy. And I guess my my approach is not to say that that's, you know, not important. I think the security element is always there. But to recognise that it's not just a security dimension. And, and so, you know, to, to answer your first question about what is the more powerful motivator, I mean, partly I'm biased to sort of say that the development angle is is always the important one. But I think um, the, the, the humanitarian dimension often serves as a very useful public face for the the security aspects of of development programs whether it's in a a a southeast asia cold war context or even in a colonial context sort of go back to the Papua new guinea stuff i think that you know there's the the pr um or propaganda value let's call it what it is propaganda value of photos of you know malaysian students at at you know melbourne uni or something in the mid-1950s is is hard to to overstate notwithstanding that many of these students would then go back to, to Malaya or Malaysia or Singapore or Thailand or, or wherever and serve in, you know, government bureaucracies to play a role in generating security factors. So so I think rather than one or the other, I, I think that, that in Australian history in particular, and this goes back to my earlier point about me recognising that there wasn't really a history of development per se in Australian history, that that very frequently the, the histories of Australia in this period focus on this strategic element, this security dimension of the Cold War, of what draws us into Malaya or, or, or Vietnam or, or what have you, which looks past this sort of intellectual history of the humanitarian approach that, that comes into it or, or the developmental approach, which never goes away. So I think, um, you know, that point of, is it consistent for them to dominate over the other or do they even out? I think they work together. I think we can't have one or the other. That, that, that 
I mean, we even see it today in, in aid policy that, that you know, when China, I'm probably anticipating questions that you're going to ask a little bit later on, but when, you know, China supposedly, and I'm using quote marks for those listening uh, on the podcast, when threatens to, to, you know, provide military bases in, in the Pacific, aid is, is a frequent um, sort of tool that gets used to, to overcome this. Um, and so I think that, that, you know, we need to see these two working together. And I think that's where my book comes in to show this, this engagement with development ideas and principles um, worked alongside and, and hand in hand with the, the sort of security, the strategic dimensions. Yeah, that's a really good point. And even if security considerations and humanitarian considerations kind of go hand in hand oftentimes, uh, one thing that is recurrent throughout the book, but also possibly recurrent through histories of international development is the kind of tensions over funding. In Australia's case, this is the tension between the Department of External Affairs and the Department of the Treasury. Uh, And so, you know, these battles take place over the 1940s and 1970s, as you write in your book. Do they hold any lessons in terms of the practicalities of how, how not just Australia, but also countries, developed countries in general, fund development programs and foreign aid? I like to think that there are lessons that that we can draw out of it. So to to contextualise for for the listeners, the Department of Treasury, um, which is probably one of the most powerful departments within the Australian Commonwealth bureaucracy, um, frequently its position is, is frequently to try and lower budgets as much as it can, not just in terms of aid, but just generally. And then in terms of the, the, the sort of the Australian federal bureaucracy or the Commonwealth bureaucracy, external affairs and so external affairs, which had responsibility for the Colombo plan and foreign policy and the territories department, which had responsibility for Papua New Guinea, were far less powerful. The, the external affairs was a relatively new department in the, the Commonwealth bureaucracy by the time of the Second World War and ter- ter- territories had frequently been there, but was a, a, a much less powerful group. Um, and so the Treasury position frequently held sway in cabinet debates. And it's a pretty arg- easy argument to make, I think, that that um, this notion that, that, you know, money spent on aid, and this is not just an Australian argument, I think this is a common argument, that money spent on aid is, is money not spent on Australia's own development, if you will. This is a tension that I, I frequently see in, in my work. And this would be, like I said, a very powerful argument to make. And I don't think it's gone away. I think that, you know, surveys are frequently held um, of of people that, that, you know, buy into that argument that, you know, the amount of money that governments spend on aid in Australia is is frequently overstated, if you will, that people think the people, the the general public, um, you know, I'll I'll try not to sound so condescending next time, Um, the general public frequently overstated estimates how much money Australia sends, spends on aid. It's very low. It's 0.2.3 of Australia's gross national product is, is spent on aid. People think it's like, you know, 5% or, or what have you. Um, I think in Australia's context, there's also a recognition that um, budgets need to somehow um, satisfy kind of self-interested motives. Uh, that, that, you know, we see it every time there's a budget, who wins, who loses, and aid doesn't fit neatly into that, that aid is sort of 
seen as this altruistic idea that you don't get a return on on aid spending. Historians of development say, well, it's not quite as straightforward as that. That that you know, development can promote trade and so on and so forth in the long run. But we won't. I don't have time to get into that that sort of a debate. But the the interdepartmental negotiations that go into this frequently revolve around external affairs officials having to sort of prove to their treasury counterparts that there is value in spending money on aid. And I don't think that's gone away. And I think sort of current policy debates would be assisted by recognising that these are conversations that have been going on for 70 plus years. Um, and, And the fact that they've been going on for 70 plus years and we still haven't managed to figure out the answers to them, I think, tells us that that um you know there is there is work to be done on on sort of refining well what do we want out of aid i I don't think australia has ever really been able to pin down what comes into you know what what um australian aid policy is aiming to do i try and sort of point it out in the the three three decades after the the second world war but i think it's a conversation that recurs every five to ten years um about what's going on um that's that's really Interesting, especially considering the environment, the global environment that we exist in now, as you kind of highlighted the tensions between, uh, you know, classic development imperatives and also the rise of China and uh, models like the Belt and Road Initiative being put forward by China. So there is a, a really good question to ask, I think, in terms of what do developed nations that are offering aid really want out of it in terms of not, not just in terms of motivation, as in questioning the motivations of the people offering the aid, but also in terms of what exactly do they want out of it uh, as a kind of major component of why spend money on 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 international development. So kind of shifting track a bit, something I found really fascinating from the book was this attempt by Australia during the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, which is, I believe, known by the quite funny acronym of UNCTAD uh, in 1964 to divide itself as this kind of middle zone country because it's not developed due to its reliance on agricultural exports, but also clearly was not a developing country because it was very wealthy and quite an advanced economy. How did this idea kind of come to be and how well did it fare at UNCTAD, considering that there were quite a few actually developing countries there who might have taken offense to this? Yes, which they did. I can, I can sort of tell you that part straight away. The, the, so first of all, UNCTAD was a, yes, and it's one of those classic UN acronyms that, that sort of sounds lovely off the tongue. Um, so UNCTAD was a conference that was was sort of really driven by countries of the global south at this moment of um, sort of decolonization and, and, and shifting ideas of development and so on. And it was driven by a, a desire to improve the sort of position of the countries of the global south in the international economy. That, that there was a recognition that the global economy was sort of um, biased, if you will, in favour of the, the, the global north, the, the, the developed countries, many of whom had previously been colonial rulers of countries of, of the global south. Um, and so part of the expectation at UNCTAD was, um, for instance, liberalisation of trade policies to make it easier for countries in the global south to sell their products to the global north. This is where Australia sort of was was a little bit nervous about what was going on, that, that Australia, as a trading nation, sold many of the same things that the global south 
you know, would, would, would expect to sell, whether it was food products, minerals, so on and so forth. So to just take a step back, Australia as a, a sort of dominion within the British Empire, its kind of economic role was as this sort of exporter of uh, primary products for the good of the empire. This was the, the purpose um, of uh, Australia, but also New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, they, these places all sort of serve similar roles. And if anything, they were the countries that sort of accepted the middle zone idea at untapped. So there's an interesting story to be told there of dominions and 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 the the, the global economy. Um, but of course, while Australia exported these these primary products, it also had a very high standard of living. It was a very wealthy country, still is a very wealthy country. And so attempts to to sort of suggest that Australia was something different didn't fit neatly into this north south sort of dichotomy. There's an early example in the, the, the immediate post-war period where Australia um, tried to sort of argue for different blocks within the the, the proposed international trade organisation, um, which never came to be. GAPT was the, the sort of outcome of that, but it was it failed because I, the OT, ITO failed. But at UNTAD, John McEwen in particular, who was the Minister for Trade, um, strongly advocated this idea that Australia wasn't part of the developed bloc because of its export, um, it wasn't a secondary um, exporting country, um, but of course wasn't a, a member of the Global South because of its um, sort of high standard of living. But both sides pretty quickly recognised the self-interest that was at the heart of here, that, that Australia was trying to get out of making trade concessions. And so ultimately, Australia did get some concessions out of it. There was a recognition that primary product sort of exporting countries, you know, didn't quite have to do the same sort of things and aid um, liberalisation was, was sort of there. But it, it, it sort of quickly went away recognising that. And you end up with these sort of weird maps of the global north and global south, sort of the bulge goes over Australia as, and New Zealand as, you know, parts of the global north in the global south, if you will, um, that come into it. But, I mean, this idea of Australia being a developing country hasn't completely gone away. You know, there are frequent references to developing the northern parts of Australia, which is sort of a more tropical region that, that you know, is sometimes seen as less developed than the urban, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, southeastern sort of area. So while it sort of perhaps doesn't carry the same weight in an international context, there is still a kind of what I might see as an anxiety over Australia's sort of status as a, a wealthy developed country that, that continues today. Which is really interesting. Uh, I just came from a conference recently where there was a debate about whether to use the term settler colonialism in Southeast Asia. And uh, someone who was there who studies Australia, Claire Lowry, was making the case that there is an interesting debate going on in Australian historical studies as well on whether or not we can actually use settler colonialism to refer to all of Australia, especially with regards to the northern kind of parts of Australia that... Uh, definitely did have settlers there, but didn't have the same settler colonial imperative as, say, the sort of, you know, what are now the metropolitan southeastern uh, seaboard. So it's definitely one of those really interesting features of the complexity of Australia, which I think tends to be seen as this giant island in the middle of nowhere, which is true, but also there is more to the story, I suppose. 
Um, so continuing our focus on the 1960s, you argue that there's this major shift that takes place as part of the Australian External Aid Review from 1964 to 1965. What changes were implemented as a result of this review and how does this fit into broader practices or ideas of development globally during the decade? So to, to continue, so in 1964-65, this is the first time in Australian history that there is a sort of a, a a coming together of, of all of the the different departments and institutions that are interested in in promoting development overseas or, or beyond Australia's borders. And and so one of the big sort of shifts that comes in as a result of the, the aid review of 1965 is to bring Papua New Guinea into to, um, considerations of aid in quotation marks. Before this, it was it was seen as something separate to aid spending, um, even though it comprised roughly two-thirds of Australia's sort of overseas development spending. So part of it was a self-interested sort of thing. By, by, bringing, by incorporating Papua New Guinea into Australian aid, suddenly Australia was spending a lot more on aid and it looked good internationally. And I think that's part of the, the global forces that are at work here that that the, the 1960s are driven by a time where there is a call for increasing aid budgets, that, that you know, there, there is a, a 1% movement to try and um, ensure that 1% of, of a, a country's gross national product is spent on, on aid. I think the highest it gets to in Australian history is in that mid-60s, late 60s period. It gets to about 0.65%. They sort of try and get to 0.7%, but they never do. And nowadays it's gone down significantly to, to 0.2, 0.3%. So there's that part of it, just a general budget sort of, of, of conception. There's also a recognition, I think this is also part of a, a, an international um, process, whereby there's this sort of um, the, the, the bureaucratic sort of actors at work in in aid policy start to consolidate that you, you you get in the United States there is a sort of agency for international development in Great Britain you have the the overseas internet uh, development um, uh, DFID the Department for international development this doesn't quite happen at the same time in Australia it's about another decade before there is the Australian Development Assistance Agency which is sort of a a precursor to what becomes known as AusAid, which no longer exists. Um, but there is a recognition that having these disparate departments interested in various aspects of aid policy isn't going to work. There needs to be a, a standalone rec- uh, sort of um, organisation that, that drives aid policy. And I think that, that kind of um, integration is something that Australia is slightly behind other parts of the world. And I think that's an interesting factor, that it's sort of learning from what other parts of the world. There's frequent um, looking at Canadian examples of, of consolidating aid policy. And I guess the last point of, of importance of the aid review is that it's the first, I mentioned aid reviews earlier, that Australian aid becomes marked by these sort of decade um you know, long gaps between aid reviews that there's one in the mid seventies, one in the early eighties, late eighties, mid nineties, early two thousands. And, and it's almost like every new government needs to have its aid review to sort of set forth what policy is going to be. And this is sort of the first story there that, that aid policy in Australia can be observed by just sort of 
what's the new aid review? What's the, the objective that's going to be put forward? And it sort of starts that process along in Australian history. Yeah. Yeah. And as we kind of enter the 1970s, which coincidentally brings us towards the end of your book as well, how does Australian development imperatives change in response to global economic shifts? So I'm thinking things like the 1973 oil shock, uh, maybe the rise of the new international economic order, and I guess economic stagnation, stagflation, really, that, that kind of takes place in lots of developed countries uh, across the developed first world. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the important sort of contextual element there as well is, of course, Papua New Guinea and independence, that at this time, as these economic uh, shockwaves are, are having their effect, Papua New Guinea is gaining its independence, that it sort of gains a degree of self-government in 1973, formally gets its independence in 1975. And so immediately Australia's sort of development policy, aid policy, whatever you want to call it, undergoes a profound shift because no longer is it directly responsible for promoting development in Papua New Guinea. It's now a, 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 I wouldn't say a relationship between equals because I think there is still a recognition that that for a deal is struck, for instance, under the Whitlam government, Whitlam Labor government in the, the as independence negotiations go on, that Australia will provide a, a straight grant to the Papua New Guinean government of hundreds of millions of dollars to support their budget. That this is a very unconventional way of giving aid. Frequently aid is, you know, given to support a particular project or a particular program, but this was a, just a, a, a cash transfer that Papua New Guinea could use that money for whatever it could. And, and it's a recognition of the lingering relationship that, that, that goes on. Um, so Australia is affected by these economic shocks. Stagflation takes place in Australia just as it does in, in you know, the United States and, and Western Europe and so on. Aid budgets take a hit as a result. So Australia, the aid budget goes down quite a bit. Um, there are some shifts in the intellectual kind of idea, the intellectual history of development, if you will, that you get a shift from big infrastructural modernisation programs to poverty alleviation, um, community development programs, which coincidentally are cheaper than, than the big, you know, hydroelectric schemes and, and, and all that kind of thing. So there is a shift there. And I guess the last point is that the NIEO, the New International Economic Order, does get some attention from early Papua New Guinean leaders. So people like Marcos Samare, he's the first prime minister of an independent Papua New Guinea. Um, his vision of national development in Papua New Guinea is informed by some of the, the sort of the key thinkers of the NIO, people like Julius Nerere of, of Tanzania, this village ideal, Samare buys into that notion and tries to promote it throughout Papua New Guinea. So I think not just from the Australian perspective, but there are early Papua New Guinean leaders who are influenced by these, these global shifts as well that inform the, the economic relationship between Papua New Guinea and Australia in the, the, the early to mid-1970s. Yeah, and to wrap things up, uh, two slightly unfair questions, um, because they're kind of outside the confines of your book, but also um, always tricky to ask historians questions about contemporary things. Um, but I guess the first question, kind of going back to something that we were talking about earlier in terms of the Colombo plan, uh, Australia has you know, no no longer runs the Colombo plan and in it is instead we have something called the new Colombo plan, which as I understand is a relatively recent invention, um, some somewhere in the 
2010s. Uh, I'm kind of curious as to your, since you're an expert on sort of Australian international development programs, what's the kind of, uh, what, what's your kind of take on the new Colombo plan and, and how does it contrast to the historical Colombo plan, I suppose? So it's it's a, an interesting phenomenon. And I, I think part of the the branding, if you will, of the new Colombo plan is really to just try and sort of co-opt the the popular memory, if you will, of the original Colombo plan, which actually does still exist, by the way. It's just a very different organization um, than it was in the the, the the 20th century. But one of the big shifts in the, the the differences between the new Colombo plan versus the original Colombo plan is that um, the new Colombo plan is is rather than a kind of tool of international development, it's a, a tool of, of, of diplomacy, if you will. But, so rather than having Asian students come to Australia to, you know, engage in that technical assistance that is part of it, to learn to go back and, and modernise their countries, the new Colombo plan is driven by the idea of Australian students travelling to Asia to study in in Asian countries and, and to sort of act as as that informal form of diplomacy that, that, that works together. And so, you know, in terms of developmental prerogatives and so on, there isn't really a connection between the two. It's more just I think it's a branding kind of exercise more than anything else. But the very fact that they've chosen the Colombo plan to lean on, I think, speaks to the ongoing relevance and importance of the Colombo plan as this sort of tool of, of Australian relations with, with the Asian region. Yeah, yeah, and, and especially on on sort of Australia's relationship with the uh, Asian region, uh, given developments in the past couple of years in the Pacific, not just Asia but also the Pacific more broadly, especially this kind of intense uh, diplomatic and economic competition between Australia and China. What implications would you say your work has uh, on contemporary Australian foreign policy? And and I should say that's a very live issue, especially uh, Australia recently had an election of a Labour government uh, this year actually and one one government that has been particularly active in foreign policy from the outset of its formation um i think the prime minister and the foreign minister have been either celebrated or reviled for the amount of trips that they've taken overseas as part of this kind of foreign uh policy uh blitzkrieg to kind of repair Australia's relations with the rest of um not just the region but the world but yeah what what, what kind of implications do you think your work has on the the uh, live issue of contemporary Australian foreign policy? So I think the big way, and I think my book, but also my, my broader research, which looks at sort of Australian empire, if you will, or, or visions of empire in, in the Pacific, of which Papua New Guinea was the largest um, part, speaks to contemporary foreign policy in, in terms of this, this perception that Australia continues to hold, and I think we see it in, in recent years, as you say, with the, the sort of very strong reactions to, to you know, Chinese um, policies in, in the Pacific. This idea of the, the Pacific as Australia's kind of area of influence, Australia, this, this dare I say, neo-colonial sort of neo-imperial attitude that Australia has towards the region, which I'm not sure the current government and and is is necessarily stepping away from. I think, if anything, they might be leaning into it a little bit more, this this notion that, that what the Pacific needs is more Australia rather than less. Um, whereas from a Pacific, you know, switching gaze from looking at the, the Australia from the Pacific, I'm not sure that's always the, the, the position that's been held. And so I guess where my work fits in is to say, well, there is a colonial history here. And 
that we we continue to live in the 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 sort of um, live with the consequence of that, whether it's political upheaval in Papua New Guinea, which you know is a country that's going through an election of its own at the moment, and there's been all sorts of, of political um, and and there's been many deaths and there's been a, a, a chaotic process that in large part that the existence of Papua New Guinea is a product of Australian colonial um, decisions and, and, you know, ongoing economic relations with the region. And so I think not notwithstanding the, the sort of the broader Australian position within what we might call an American empire as, you know, is Australian anti-Chinese sentiment to what extent is that a product of, of kind of American influences, this either-or kind of question that Australians frequently come up with? And, and you know, I'm thinking of Emma Shortis's really interesting book on, on Australia's sort of dependence on the United States that shows the layers of, of relationship that go on here that Australia finds itself sort of in the middle of um, that I think have a historical resonance that, that if we knew more about or, you know, if contemporary policymakers, this is the, the historian's arrogance here, if contemporary policymakers knew more about these histories, they might tread a little bit more warily into the Pacific than, than sometimes they, they otherwise do. So I think that's where, you know, yes, it's a, a tricky historical question, but I think, you know, a little bit more historical literacy on the part of our policymakers might be something to, to, to take away, yeah. Which is always a good lesson. Uh, we could actually keep talking about your book and Australian foreign policy all day, but I'm conscious of taking up too much of your time, Nick. So I thought I'd wrap things up the classic New Books Network way, which is asking you what you're working on next or what's your next project. So I've, I'm currently sort of working on a, a couple of different projects. And, and one is a, a COVID-related project. It was sort of a product of digital archives rather than actually going to physical archives, not being able to, to travel. But I've been working on Australia's uh, behaviour in the UN Trusteeship Council, um, sort of engaging with uh, ideas of Australia's sort of participation in what we might call a colonial block and where Papua New Guineans and, and now ruins, which was another Australian colony, sort of fit into that story. And I've also got broader visions of looking at Australia's relationship with, with the World Bank and tracing its connections to, to sort of Australian, uh, sort of, sorry, Papua New Guinean decolonisation, Australia's own development to obtain funds there. And just thinking broadly where development and empire sort of sit together, whether it's in the Pacific, whether it's in the Indian Ocean, there's a little bit of work that I'm doing there as part of my postdoc. So, yeah, looking at just Australian empire and development, sort of broadening my horizons a little bit there. That sounds really exciting. I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of these projects. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us on this episode of New Books in History to discuss your book, Australia in the Age of International Development, 1945 to 1975, Colonial and Foreign Aid Policy in Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia, published in 2019 by Routledge. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Bernard. And that book title is a big mouthful, isn't it? So <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks for reading it out a couple of times. Thank you, thank you Nick.